A story which is increasingly being told in Australia is that of the massacre of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that occurred in the aftermath of colonisation. Whether it be through oral stories passed down through generations or a growing body of documented evidence, the true extent of frontier violence is reaching new audiences and challenging preconceived ideas about our nation's past. Surviving New England, a history of Aboriginal resistance and resilience through the first 40 years of the colonial apocalypse, is a new book highlighting First Nations resistance to colonisation. Through the use of archive newspapers and government records, the book paints a detailed picture of Aboriginal people's fight for survival during the early colonial period. Callum Clayton Dixon is the author of the book and he joins me now. Callum, welcome to Speaking Out. Dangana. This is the first time we've had you on the show, so I was wondering if you could share with us where you grew up and what was your upbringing like? Sure. So I was actually born over in Aotearoa in 1994 and we, like my family, moved over to Australia in 2000 and yeah, that was when I was eight years old. Uh, I didn't quite know what to make of it as an eight-year-old, but then uh, as I got a bit older, uh, in my late teens, I started visiting my family here in Armidale, spending a lot of time down here, getting to know my extended family. And in 2015, when I was 20, I moved to live here uh, on my grandfather's country, and I've been here ever since for the last five years. Now, tell us about the language revival program that you've been involved in. So, the language program, originally we established the Anwan Language Revival Program in 2016, I think it was in April. So, a group of us got together, a group of Anwan people here in Armidale, and made the decision to start a community-based, community-driven language revitalisation effort. And the main project that we uh, set out to undertake was the development of the first Anawan language knowledge book. So as comprehensive as possible, uh, a dictionary and a grammar, because there hasn't been one of those produced as of yet. So over the last four or five years, um, that's one of the projects that I've been working on, on and off. And now that's the main part of my PhD project uh, is to produce that dictionary and grammar. And the language program have held our first ever language classes here in Armidale in late 2018 for the local Aboriginal community. And we've also been doing some classes at the local Aboriginal preschool and primary school, Minimbar, over the last couple of years as well. So amongst all of this really important cultural work, you've found time to write another book, uh, Surviving (laughs) New England. What were your motivations for this project, especially since you're obviously so immersed in your culture in, in other ways? Well, originally, I had no real intention of writing anything about our people's history. I was much more interested in like kind of the reclamation of language and culture from the archives rather than telling the history of, of those early years of colonisation and our people's experience through it. But what I found quickly when just trying to come up with a simple explanation as to why the Anawan language, as compared to Gumbanga, Dangati, Gatang on the coast, um, or Kamilaroi out west, like people often asked us, like, why is Anawan so much worse off? Like, why have you only got a few hundred words recorded? Why haven't you had speakers for decades and decades and decades? So I started looking into the uh, local histories and and other writings on the colonial history of Anawan country. And what I very quickly found was that these histories 
more or less just had a chapter at the beginning of the book, which would make some more or less token mention of the tribes that once occupied this area. Uh, these were kind of station histories or chapters in local history books or papers in, in academic journals. And then on and off, they'd mention, oh, there was some Aborigines working on uh, this station and that station, and then they had relatively good relations with the squatters and, uh, and the settlers, and there was very little violence uh, involved in that early colonial process. And so I thought, well, like our people haven't been done justice, like our ancestors haven't been done justice by these writings in terms of their fierce resistance to colonisation, to the invasion, and their story of survival against all odds hasn't been done justice. There was that element to it. And it was also a number of conversations that I had with members of my family, uh, one uncle in particular, who said to me something along the lines of, like, I want to know that our people didn't just lay down and die like, and let the coloniser take our country and, and take our lives. He said he wanted to know that our people fought back just like Pemaway did, just like Sitting Bull, Geronimo and the Māori in, in New Zealand did, because he'd, he'd heard all these stories about other Indigenous peoples elsewhere fighting back, but he just hadn't heard that same thing about his own people. And I guess that was one of the main motivating factors behind me, starting just to trawl through the archives as deeply as possible and as thoroughly as possible, trying to uncover every possible piece of evidence of our people's fierce resistance and their story of survival through that really, really tumultuous time. Were there particular stories of resistance that stood out for you in researching the book? I think there was a couple that involved warriors that were actually named, because it's quite rare in the archive, in regards to our area anyway, to find names of the resistance fighters. And there was two that we managed to come across that weren't just English names that had been bestowed upon Aboriginal people like Jemmy or Bobby or, or names like that. These were language names that, that had actually appeared in the newspapers. Like there was one warrior by the name of Wombardi. And in 1837, his name appeared throughout the uh, Sydney newspapers as having been involved in a coordinated resistance activity down in the Port Macquarie district. But the reason why we're able to link him to, to New England is that they kept talking about the fact that they couldn't find an interpreter for him because the language that he spoke was so different to anything else that Europeans had ever come across in the coastal districts. And they said that he was a native of New England. So not only was that an Aboriginal man, an Aboriginal warrior who, who had his language name printed in the colonial newspapers at that time, but it also talked about uh, and made reference to the uniqueness of our culture and language here up on the tableland. And a second person who was named in the papers was in, I think, it might have been February or March 1839, and he was a warrior who was involved in a, an attack on a station very near by to where my grandfather grew up on the Inglebar Aboriginal Reserve. And, yeah, so they were Tamo, the, an Aboriginal from the, from the Inglebar area. So even though they might seem just like very, very small, insignificant snippets of information, for us they're quite uh, important and valuable because we're able to put names to our ancestors who were involved in that fierce resistance. It's really interesting hearing you talk about how you've gone through this archive. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that process. And in particular, I imagine a lot of what you were looking at was written from a colonial point of view. So since you were trying to, I guess, in a way, reinterpret it, how did you approach that? Well, for those early years of 
frontier conflict on the table. And in almost every instance, in terms of articles in the papers or reports by the Crown Lands Commissioner, the incidents of frontier conflict were referred to as more or less just random acts of violence committed by the blacks. That was how they were portrayed. Like there was no reference to very, very little reference, very rare references to the motivations of what was, in effect, a guerrilla war of resistance. So I had to kind of pull whatever bits and pieces out and deduce from the evidence a broader kind of strategy and motivation behind all of these different incidents of frontier conflict. But they weren't just random. They were, they were part of a sustained war of resistance. So there's bits and pieces of evidence, quotes in the archive from people at the time and also a few decades later where they recognised that it was a war of resistance. There was an article written in a newspaper in the 1880s about New England and the author talked about how our people defended our land against the white invader with tact and vigour. So that even though at the time, in the 1830s, 40s and even into the 1860s, there was very little recognition of our people's concerted intentional resistance effort to expel the, the coloniser and to stem the tide of the colonial occupation, later on, there was more of that kind of recognition. And, and there, was, there was another guy in the, in the 1920s or late, maybe 1918, something like that, who wrote a very, very similar thing talking about how there was a war and used those kinds of terms. And then you move forward into, say, the 1980s, 1990s, and even closer to today, and people have trouble recognising that conflict as war. Yet these white historians and writers way back then were quite happy to call it that. I imagine the book has two key audiences, one, of course, being non-Indigenous people learning more about their history, and the other, of course, being First Nations people, particularly of your country. From your perspective as the author, what are you hoping those audiences will take away from the book? For our own mob, I think it's a matter of, like, uh, I've heard and read bits and pieces about how older people from maybe a couple of generations ago, like they've written in a book or or been interviewed and, and said something along the lines of, we don't really talk about those dark times. Like we want to, we, we don't want to not kind of talk about those horrific things that happened in the past. And then there's been the entire conspiracy of silence whereby the history books have written our people's story of resistance and resilience during that early period, written out of the history And it's all kind of clouded in mystery in many ways, or it just gets a mention in a footnote or some minor reference in a first chapter of a book. So I guess my hope for Aboriginal people, for my people here on the tableland, is that our people can take pride in that kind of reconstructed history of our people's fierce resistance, like my uncle wanted to to know about. Like we all know that our people fought back, but it's just those details of falling out of people's knowledge and, and memory due to both that conspiracy of silence and just the sheer pain and trauma of that time and subsequent years. And with uh, local non-Aboriginal people, like there's been quite a positive response so far like and a lot of interest and people saying that they're reading the landscape in a very different way. So when they're driving across country, say from Armidale to the coast or going towards Dorigo, seeing all the signposts to places like Majors Point or Majors Creek, which is named after Major Edward Park, who was a notorious terror to local Aboriginal people and was involved in a major massacre in 1852, 
or Poison Swamp Creek on the way from Urala to, to Tamworth or just on the other side of Bendemeer where colonists in either the mid or late 1830s took arsenic and put it in milk and gave it to um, local Aboriginal people there. So just those kind of place markers and, and signs, like physical signs in the landscape, people able to read them in, in a different way or, or uh, Terrible Vale. Terrible Vale Station was one of the early stations taken up in southern New England uh, named after a man known as Terrible Billy, William Stevenson, who shot uh, a large number of Aboriginal people on the creek on the Terrible Vale run. So just I think people have been able to get a better understanding of the landscape along which and upon which they travel and live on an everyday basis. Even walking around or driving around town in Armidale, all the street signs that have the names of some of the people mentioned in the book, either simply as people who've written about Aboriginal people back in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, or like there's a sign in Armidale for uh, Allingham Street. And there was an Allingham in 18, I think it was 1864, Edward Allingham Jr., who was involved in one of the last confrontations or conflicts with uh, resistance fighters near the Gorge country. He was the superintendent, the manager of, was it, I think it was the Guerra or Hillgrove Station, and a group of resistance fighters that I think were made up of people from the coast, so the Maclay, the Bellinger, and maybe even the Clarence River, and then people from New England were up on the table and having been driven up here by the native police who'd been brought down from Queensland and they'd been raiding stations and they'd been seen carrying and using large amounts of firearms and stockpiles of ammunition, which they'd managed to get as payment for labouring on stations down the coast. So this Edward Allingham went out and actually had a confrontation with these warriors on the edge of the falls who'd taken off with four or 500 sheep, sacked one of the uh, huts on the outstation at Cooney Creek so these names are all throughout the book that people can see around town here in Armidale and across the region. Callum, it strikes me doing this work that it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on the importance of truth-telling, which has obviously become something that is part of the reform agenda nationally. What are your thoughts on why that's important? Well, I think you look over in, in Russia where you had Joseph Stalin, brutal dictator, rule for over a decade or something, something like that, and millions of people were killed or died under his brutal regime. And as, pretty much as soon as he left, you had the following Russian government institute a process of what they call, I think, is known as de-Stalinisation, where they started pulling down all the old statues. Some of them they even blew up with dynamite and to try and get rid of that cult around him and what he did. So I think you can apply that same kind of idea to what needs to take place here in Australia and that kind of broader conversation that's happening here and elsewhere around the world where slavers and people who perpetrated these massive acts of violence against Indigenous people or mob in Africa, you can apply that to our context here where you've got places like Majors Creek and Majors Point or uh, McDonald Park right in the middle of Armidale, which is named after the first Commissioner of Crown Lands here in New England, who oversaw the massacre of nine Aboriginal people up near Glen Innes in 18, early 1840. These names in the landscape link back to the original crimes that were committed against our people way back when. But I think the conversation needs to go beyond ripping down statues and removing plaques and things like that because 
simply removing those things lets them off the hook, in a, uh, essentially, I think. So unless there's actual reforms that go with the removal of these statues and monuments and plaques and all that, then it's more or less another instance of simply symbolism. Because with that whole de-Stalinisation process that went over in Russia and in the Soviet Union, there wasn't just the removal of Stalin's statues. There was a whole lot of political and, I think, legal reforms as well that went with it. And I think that same approach needs to be taken here, where we look at these people and what they were involved in in the first place. So these squatters like Major Edward Park or the New England Crown Lands Commissioner, they were involved in the dispossession of Aboriginal people in the 1830s, 1840s onwards. There needs to be those fundamental questions of reparations and land returns. Those questions need to be brought up in the conversation and addressed alongside the symbolic removal of these statues and plaques and, and so on. Well, finally tonight, and very importantly, how can people get a hold of the book? How can they get a copy? So you can either get Surviving New England from uh, some of the bookshops here in Armidale. I think some of them sell copies on, online through their online shops like Boo Books and Reader's Companion as well. Otherwise, you can order them directly from Newara Aboriginal Corporation, which is what the Animal and Language Revival Program has been rebranded as earlier in the year. So you can contact us at revivinganawan, A-N-A-I-W-A-N, at gmail.com. Well, Callum, thank you so much for being with us this evening and sharing your insights that have come out of this really important work. No worries. Callum Clayton Dixon is the author of the book Surviving New England, A History of Aboriginal Resistance and Resilience Through the First 40 Years of the Colonial Apocalypse.